and immediately it's like the walls closed in. I just, I, everything went up, defenses, because you're going through this world and thinking that the only thing folks are interested in is do you know what you know? Mm -hmm. They're not looking at your skin color, even though I knew. But I guess in higher education, I figured it would be different. And so because of the era when I was raised and, and I was like the height of the civil rights movement, all of that was in there. The thing to keep you going was that there was hope that if it didn't happen for you, it would happen for the next generation. Yes. And so that's how I keep going. I keep thinking, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe in my son. One of Maya Angelou's quotes is, if you get, give. If you learn, teach. My guest today fully embodies this. Dr. Alice Crawford, whom we lovingly call Dr. A, is one of my favorite teachers from grad school. She shows up for her students and clients. You can count on her to be honest and give excellent advice. When I was going through a hard time after grad school, I emailed Dr. A and she responded right away. She met me the next day online, listened to me, and gave me ideas on how to proceed. In this intimate, funny, and honest conversation with Dr. A, she shares her path from electrical engineering to computer science to being a therapist. We talk about her 41 years of marriage, racism, and raising a Black son in the United States. She shares her advice for a BIPOC therapist starting in the mental health field. And oh yeah, we talk about hope. Dr. Alice Crawford has a doctorate in counsel psychology and is a licensed clinical professional counselor in the United States of Illinois and Minnesota. She has over 25 years of experience and has worked with individuals from the United States Postal Service to the BNSF Railway. Dr. Crawford also teaches new counselors. What I love about Dr. A as a teacher is her honesty and humor. She always reminds us to keep things simple. Don't complicate things, keep it simple. Welcome to Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie Podcast. Your host, Patricia Peterson, has conversations with BIPOC folks about life, shares wisdom, and discusses their experience with topics like growing up in an immigrant family, racism, and the sense of belonging. In this podcast, we give voice to people of color and learn more about their lives. So join your Chinese auntie as she has compelling conversations with fascinating people. Without any further ado, let's dive headfirst into this episode. Hello, Dr. A. Hi. I still, after all these years, I still call you Dr. A. I don't think I can call you. I know. I don't look like anything else. I've never actually, I myself have never gotten used to being called Dr. Crawford since I got my doctorate. Never got used to it. No, I never got used to it. For a long time, I didn't even talk about it. And then somebody, because I received it while I was doing America stuff. And someone was like, do you have a doctorate? Yeah. You do? (laughs) Yeah. 
And that's when it started coming out. But I don't know. I just never, I don't know. I, for me, it was just the education of it. So, Did you pick Dr. A? Because I wonder, why did you go with Dr. C? Okay, this is a funny <laughs> thing. This is so funny. When my son was young, my, my regular physician's name is Dr. Anderson. And when he was very young, we were trying to get him to say Dr. Anderson, and he couldn't, and he tried. And so he said, Dr. A. And I was like, oh, that works for me. I like that one. Okay, yeah. good. And so that's how I started using Dr. A. <laughs> that's how I started using it, yeah. I really love that. Yes. Well, so the first question of the podcast is, who are you? Where are your ancestors from? Just so we can get to know you a bit better. Oh, no problem. I'm Alice Crawford. Um, my pronouns are she, her. I'm African-American. I was born on the south side of Chicago. And actually, my street that I lived on was the dividing line between the two biggest rival gangs. One was the Blackstone, Blackstone Nation, Black Peacestone Nation. Later on, they became that. And the other one was the disciples. And when way back when, when I was a kid, they didn't use weapons and stuff, but it was a lot of fighting, yeah. knives and stuff. The fights and things would take place on our block Ooh. because that was the dividing line. And so it's like gangs, they were around us as I was growing up. And, and so... Maybe that's how come I have this very harsh gang kind of attitude sometimes. <laughs> but you have to, there were some of us that was very respected. Some of the older kids, they were teens. We were like 10, 11. They said, don't mess with them. And as we got older, it was a continual, don't mess with them. They called me baby girl. And so they were like, don't mess with baby girl. And so that's how we were able to get side step the gangs. But yeah, that's where I grew up, South Side Chicago. And then, yeah, my mom, dad are from the South. So sometimes people think I'm from the South. I guess when I'm talking really fast, when they say they hear an accent, I was like, really? I was like, oh, so it might've been because of mom and dad. Dad was born in Mississippi. Mom was born in Arkansas, and then they got together. Um, and so possibly I picked up some of my, the way I talk from them and doing that. Let's see what else. I've been married for 41 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 41 years. There's times when I, I do question whose idea was that. No, it's cheaper to keep them now. But yeah, I'm telling you, it's cheaper to keep them. But we met when I was in undergrad. And so I actually was running a radio station, the, the school that I attended for undergrad, which was Illinois Institute of Technology. That was my previous life. That was when I was in total technology. And I was in electrical engineering, and then I changed over to computer science later. And that's what I graduated with on my undergrad, was computer science. And so there was a radio station for the campus that you could run. And I got like, bamboozled into <laughs> being the, they were, well, they were like, oh, come visit the radio station. So his name was uh, Cecil. Come visit the radio station. I went and visited the radio station. This is so cool. 
And he was like, what do you think about running this? I was like, wow, this would be so cool. And he was like, okay, good. Then we'll take it. And then I was like, take what? <laughs> oh, you're the new director. What? What? It was, I did, somehow I got voluntold. I don't know. I had to recruit disc jockeys. And so there were some that was still with this radio station. And there was this one slot in the afternoon. And I couldn't fill it. And so Cecil was like, why don't you ask my roommate? He doesn't go to IIT, but he spends a lot of time with IIT. I'm like, okay. And I went over there to meet him. And I just couldn't stand him. Because as I talked to him, he was reading the newspaper. He would not make eye contact. He wouldn't turn to look at me. And all I kept thinking in my mind was, this is such a jerk arrogant jerk but he agreed finally agreed to do the show and it was him and there was another student there's Darren they were my assistant station managers and that's how it got started and and it was funny because I really didn't have any kind of romantic feelings for him in fact I talked to him about his girlfriend's girlfriend he's going to and stuff and then, I don't know, one night it just started happening. And said, we've been together ever since. Yeah. Is so, that a secret, do you think? I think so. Another part of it was the, for, I don't know, first five, six years, we really didn't see each other because he worked nights and I worked days. So I always say that was helpful. It's okay. We didn't have to look at each other. We could spend some quality time, but not too much quality time together. And we did that for a while. And then we were just, it just I don't know, as they called us dinks at that time, double income, no kids. And so we didn't have my son until after we'd been married for about 10 years. So it was just, we had to just have a good time. It was very simple back then. So you guys had time to get to know each other really well before you brought kids in. This is true because we were pretty laid back. In the very beginning, my husband was like extremely ambitious. And I'm like, oh, get real. And I think that's how we, that was the attraction for us because he was very grounded and conservative and very methodical and stuff. And I was just like, what's that? What's that? And so we were like total polar opposites. And to this day, we're total polar opposites. He is extremely into technical and I'm extremely into people. Well, would you say you've grounded now? I don't want to say you're old, but as you get old. Oh, yeah, I'm old. Oh, trust me, I'm old. Um, my perception of you is you're fun, but you're also grounded in my perspective. I think after being married for so long, you pick up on each other's traits and you begin to see the other's worldview. Mm. And so it's really funny because sometimes you will say, I was acting like Brian Crawford today and I said this. And he was like, yeah, I was like as- acting like Alice Crawford. Or he'll say something that I've said for a while. Or I'll say something that he said for a while, though he always teases. What did you say? Let me get the calendar. So actually said something for me. And I was like, yeah, right. But we picked up on that. So I'm not as wild spirited as I was as a kid. 
he is a young person, but I still have the quirks and the excitement of seeing life, nature, getting, it's like really cool to see. I was like watching the squirrel because I feed them acorn because we have an acorn and very old oak tree in their backyard. gathered acorns. And I was like watching these two squirrels like battle over the acorns. And I just think that is so cool. And I'm like, watch. And everybody else, they're two squirrels. I'm like, but that is so cool. So isn't my husband like that? He's they're just two squirrels. But I don't get it. Um, He doesn't appreciate your appreciation for nature. That's what I say. (laughs) That's what I say. So but it's the but then sometimes he'll say it's the simple things in life that give me excitement. And mm. I was like, Oh, okay. So I guess after over forty plus years you do rub off on each other and he's grounded me a little bit, so I'm not as impulsive and, you know, wild spirited. But at the same time I've helped him to stop being so rigid. So how did you get from technology to being a counselor? Now do you use the term counselor or therapist? I use them all, counselor, therapist, psychotherapist. I just think mental health, (laughs) counselor. I think they're all the same and they're just used interchangeably. But to get out of undergrad, it was a very tough school. And there was a a big initiative to try and recruit minority students because though it was in the heart of the Chicago community that was predominantly African-American, it was a predominantly white school. And the gentleman that did a lot of recruitment of students, students of color, BIPOC, and was Nate Thomas, the late Nate Thomas, God bless him. And he went through and recruited a lot of us from around the city of Chicago to come to IIT to go to school and we did, but there was, needless to say, a lot of pushback from the powers that be, it was some of the professors. The actual provost was the one that requested Nate to recruit. He told us the story and I was like, I thought that was so cool. He said he was having lunch, I think he said, having lunch one day and provost saw him and walked up and he said, oh, you work. It was some department he worked in. And he was like, I think you would do well in recruiting. And so that's how he became a recruiter. And so we went. But the battle, shall we say, of getting through that school was very tough. We really, yeah, Nate would tell us to hang together. And so oh. we really clung to each other. We would as they say, pass along the files. It was, the, this is what you do to, in order to get through this class, this, this professor. And by the time I got down to, I was getting close to graduation time, this one professor who did not like us ended up expelling me oh. for, for great. And, but somehow, I always say, was lucky that I changed my major. So he was in the engineering 
And I changed my major to computer science because they were like, change major to computer science. We talked to each other. Change it to computer science. The, the chair of the computer science department is much more lenient. You can get in and you're able to get your degree. And so that's what I did. It never, I worked in computers and stuff, but it was never really a calling. Well, my mind was set up. Everybody has their gifts, methods, procedures, math, all of that's one of my natural gifts. I was able to really navigate it, but it never really gave me joy. Well, and oddly enough, I was in therapy at the time, going through some of the discussion. And my therapist at the time asked me a strange question. She was like, thought of becoming a therapist? No. And she was like, I don't know. I just, I think you would do well in it. Okay, let me look it up. And so I looked it up and I was like, yeah, I guess I could do this. It sounds cool. So I finished up my degree at IIT and my GPA was so low, I could not be accepted into grad school. I'm like, my GPA was like 23. Like I said, it was very tough to get out of IIT. And so I went through, they were like, I wanted to go through the, as they say, the back door, the back door. And so Loyola University, Chicago had a counseling, community counseling program. And so I talked with the person that was the chair at that time. And it was like, we well, got all of this engineering and all that. You don't have any psychologists. That's okay. Can get it. And so I went back, took psychology classes and got through all of those. I had to take six of them. Got through all of those. And then they had me to go as I say, in the back door, I was a student at large, as I say, no declared program. And I took three classes, aced those, and then I was able to get into their program. So, yeah, so that's how it unfolded. Computers are great as far as a puzzle. Uh, I went through back then, I was way really back when, it was great big mainframe in the basement card reader. You walk to the card reader. If you dropped all those cards, oh my gosh, punch cards and the whole bit. It was great for puzzles, but mm. it would get old. Whereas people were always fascinating to me, how they tick, what, how they saw the world. And it was it, always interesting to me is, okay, I see it. I don't understand how see it why don't you see it and so that's when i was like oh okay maybe it's people maybe she's right mm -hmm. yeah and so that's how i ended up in the field so have you in your years of experience we talk about a lot of people are talking now about decolonizing therapy because a lot of the therapy old school therapy a lot of it is based on white teachings, right? And very individual, very Western. Um, there are a lot of calls in recent years to decolonize. So yeah. looking at it from different perspective and also doing ancestors healing work, yeah. understanding how 
privilege might impact us by healing process and maybe a systemic oppression that impact how we heal because the mental health feel can be, for lack of a better word, very white. Mm-hmm. Have you, like, in your years of working, how does that apply? Have you looked at it from that perspective? Oh, yeah. It's, I think it started for me in really looking at the perspective when I was first starting out and an African-American mom came for a counseling session. And she was talking about her kids. She was a sing- single parent. And she's talking about her kids. And so within the African-American community, it is not an uncommon practice to punish by whipping. Ooh. I grew up with that. And there was also a lot of discussion in regards to, oh, that's child abuse, the kind of thing. It was never really seen that way within the community. And so when this mom came, she's talking about it, and she's talking about her older son, and he was getting out of hand, and so she was saying, oh, I gave him a whipping, blah, 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 blah. So when I talked with my clinical supervisor at that time, I was explaining, going through, talking about cases, and I talked about this mom, and I said, oh, yeah, she said this. For me, it was like no big deal. Mm-hmm. This is old hat. This is within the community. My clinical supervisor at the time, who was white, was like, did you report it? Oh. Report what? <laughs> and it was like, she admitted to whipping her child. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hello. And so it was like really like eye-opening again, so oh. to speak. I only had one other time where it was eye-opening during grad school, when I was doing group, we had the group course. And so they broke us down and we were in the small groups and we're going through and there were a, a number of BIPOC students, but they were male. I was the only female. And so for me, which is possibly a part of my culture, but definitely a part of my family is that you don't dwell on the fact that you are African-American. You dwell on the fact of, do you have integrity, honesty, are you trustworthy, that kind of thing. You don't look at color. And as we would go through these exercises and things, I never thought about it until one of the white students said, I could tell Alice, she's very out there because she's black. And immediately it's like the walls closed in. I just, I, everything went up, defenses, because you don't think, you're going through this world and thinking that the only thing folks are interested in is, do you know what you know? Mm -hmm. They're not looking at your skin color, even though I knew they were looking at your skin color. But I guess in higher education, I figured it would be different. And little did I know it wasn't different. And so that lingering around there and then having this to happen with this mom and really looking at, okay, who were the theorists that I was learning from? Okay. You don't, you guys don't get it. (laughs) 
And believe it or not, I actually found myself, which of course, where I was working, they hadn't had a BIPOC counselor before. And needless to say, minorities came out the woodwork to come mm-hmm. see me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that I did not give as much information, the cultural aspects of it. I gave strictly, I like, as I say, wrenched it. So it was a generality within the white culture, the well, majority right. culture. I didn't talk about any of the nuances or the the exchanges that I would have with my clients, particularly African-Americans, where it was a lot more comfortable with them if I just, as I say, stepped into my color. Well, uh, then they were much more open to talk with me. And because within the African-American community, I was a kid, but spirituality, religion, big to do. And, but, you know, you don't talk about that. Yeah, you know, that's the training I got. We talked about values. And mind you, I went to a Catholic university, but I just talked about the values and things. Was, you can't push this on your clients and stuff. And having those conversations with them where it's God has forsaken me, I'm angry at God, all of those. Then I was able to have those conversations, but I did. I never shared those conversations. Mm-hmm. With my clinical supervisor, I would just say, oh, yeah, they came in, they're depressed. I'm engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy. They've been doing this. We've gone through the thought record. We looked at their, it was very general, very nothing, no cultural aspect to it. Because I felt like I would have to continuously defend how I interacted with those clients. I get that because of my practice, 90% are Asians and 80% are people who identify as women of color, Asian women. And in my own therapy experience and with these clients, it's the same sense in that when I'm talking to a therapist who's a BIPOC, a person of color, mm-hmm. there's that sense of understanding that you don't have to explain too much. If we take the, the topic of racism, you're talking to a therapist who is a person of color, you don't have to go into details, the impact of how racism impacts you. Whereas someone who's not a BIPOC therapist, they might not get it. And I think in our nervous system, we get it. Mm-hmm. As a person of color, whether they understand or not, it's not surprising to me that when you started, people found you. The BIPOC found you. So in your years of practice, do you think we're better? Like in this aspect of in the mental health field, are we better at adjusting and understanding to nuances? Or- I think we are. And the reason being is I always say, when it comes to our clinical experience, and, and I always say to those who are just starting out in counseling, they were like, ah, oh, I didn't do counseling before. I'm like, you bring a lot to the table. Well, you bring a whole lot to the table. Your life's experiences, which is, I always give out, now it's an old article, but an article by Skoholt and Ronstadt, who did a longitudinal study about how our personal and our professional lives intertwine. 
And so the experiences that we've had in regards to treatment in society is something that we brought to the table. And so therefore we are, we see it in a totally different perspective because of having the experiences of it. I, I always think about it like we were talking, I was talking to someone one time and they were like, do you feel as if it really is that you encounter bad treatment in stores? And I said, yeah, but and it, and it was a, a white person that asked me. I says, yeah, but it's different for me. And they were like, how's it different for you? And I said, if I come in and, and a clerk walks up and they are rude to me, I don't know if they're rude because I'm black. Yeah. I don't know if they're rude towards me because I'm female. Or I don't know if they're rude to me because they're a jerk. Ooh. I'm not sure. Now that I've gotten older, I don't know if they're rude to me because I'm older. I, I don't know. Yeah. You just, it's okay. So you have to lump it all together because he, he, it's like you don't want to, as I say, be, be vulnerable in one aspect of it and not in the other. You know, the whole intersectionality um, aspect, particularly with African-American women, that you have to know how to maneuver and navigate mm-hmm. because of the treatment that you've had. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking with your clients, the BIPOC clients, and knowing that these, this is the same experience they've had in society, then they don't have to go into a great deal of detail. Let yeah. me explain this to you. Let me explain to you that. I find it most pronounced when I am counseling African-American men. I, I find it most pronounced. And I was thinking about this one gentleman that he sought out counseling. And he said to me, he was like, speaking out counseling because my wife told me to. I was like, of course she did. And so we talked for the first session and he was just having difficulties at work and the treatment that he was getting. And he was one of two BIPOC professionals there and trying to explain to me what was happening to him in his role. And so I'm sitting there listening to him. He's like, yeah. I said, yeah. So I know it's tough, isn't it? Because if you just want to go in and do your job. You don't want anybody throwing it up in your face. You're African-American. And it's, yeah. And what's your point? And he started laughing and he was like, you get it. You get it. And I was like, of course, I get it. You you just want to do your job. You don't want to have to go in there and defend your color or have to act a certain way because of your race and your ethnicity. And so he was able to really open up in that very first session. Of course, the next session he told me, he was like, you're actually very scary. And I said... Okay. And he was like, because you could see through me. And I was like, yeah, because some of the experiences you had, I've had those encounters and those experiences. And 
he was like, yeah, but it's, it is really, it, it's really like spooky <laughs> that there are things you told me yesterday of what I was feeling or what I was thinking in a particular time or a particular moment, or the, he was telling me about the exchange with his, his manager. And I was going through and saying, yeah, no, it's, it's very difficult when you have to dummy down in order to make your manager feel good. He said, that was the most profound statement to him. And Mm -hmm. I said, really? And he says, because in order to get along sometimes, that's what we have to do. And yeah, absolutely. I've run into that many times. You talking about the doctorate and possibly that's the influence on me. That's the reason I didn't even think about it because of how others would respond to the fact that I had a doctorate and I had back-to-back female managers that I had a target on my back. I knew I had a target on my back and they continuously gave me a hard time and it was very tough. And so I understood what he was experiencing, what he had gone through because I've gone through that. So I think that's a part of what we bring to the table when mm-hmm. we're talking to BIPOC clients. One is it's a he finding felt seen by you because he didn't have to explain. But the thing is, even, and I don't know whether you have the experience, even though we can explain it, but if the other person is not BIPOC, there's parts of us that know that they don't get it or they don't get the impact of it, right? Correct. I am curious though, Dr. A, I'm asking this because in the Chinese culture, there's a huge difference of how the boys or the men are treated versus the women. I've had male Chinese clients who are now waking up to the privilege that they've been living with, even though they've experienced racism. But they're now waking up to the fact of, oh, no, wait, but I still have advantage over my fellow Chinese women. Mm-hmm. Because in a patriarchal society, men are still looked upon as more valuable. Is that the same for the Black folks? Yes, mm-hmm. very much. The males within my culture, are, are there is the expectation. It's a patriarchal um, community. And my mom definitely rules the roost. It is expected that the man will lead. And so there is much more attention given to the man um, to do that. And we're even socialized that if they say something or whatever that we... We definitely let them do that. It was interesting. It was, I went to a beauty salon and it was, I had a homework assignment where we were supposed to do observational research. And so you just sit and you watch. And so there were four women and one guy. Then they're talking back and forth and they're exchanging different things, politics, religion, and me going back and forth. I noticed when the women were talking, it was like 
two women over here would talk, two women over here would talk. So these simultaneously conversations would go on and they were going back and forth. When the guy talked, everybody got quiet. I'm looking at this and I was able to observe for an hour where each time the conversation would go on and he would chime in. The women got quiet. He finished what he had to say. Then the women could talk. But it was like having that interaction, like the women were having with each other. And I'm like, okay, we got two different conversations going on. I'm like sitting, going back and forth. It, it, it wasn't the same as when he was talking. He would turn to whoever and start talking to them. And the others would stop talking and start talking, listening to him. I, I just thought that was fascinating. But all of them, of course, was African-American. And I did the research and found that, yes, that is something, that's a characteristic that is seen. Do you think that's still, that is still common? I think so. I think mm. if we did observational learning, I have observational research. I haven't done it in a number of years, but I would be interested because I, I did this at the beginning of my doctoral. I would be interested to to see the phenomenon happen again, mm. if it does happen again, if it's still past generation to generation, that the men, it's a patriarchal community, so the men are looked at to be the leaders and to be there, which is the reason when they're not like involved in the families and things like that, and we have single moms, it, that they're... They, there's difficulties and deficits for the kids. That's a whole nother story. But And so I think it's because the leadership is still looked for in the male. So, yeah, they were groomed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's similar in the Chinese culture. But do you think that, and the answer is probably yes, do you think that when it comes to racism towards Black folks, that there's a distinct difference between Black men and Black women. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, definitely. I've noticed with Black men, definitely, particularly with my son, as a mother of an African-American male, mm -hmm. it is scary. Mm -hmm. It is very scary because for any reason, they are profiled, they are they go through a lot more. Well, the women, at least for me, I feel we're dismissed. It's like you can say something, but what you have to say has no value. Well, um, as, not as much as the African-American male, but the African-American male is dismissed. <laughs> so we're lower on the totem pole. Um, and what was the psychologist, Dr. Kimberly? I always get her hyphen, is it? Williams Crenshaw or Crenshaw Williams. I always get it confused. But she talked about, she was the one that, that coined the, the term intersectionality um, in regards to how African-American women are treated. Um, and, and it was some research, I can't recall all of it, but it was basically like how the, the women uh, of color within corporate think that's what it was had to act in a different way in order to be accepted which is 
where I get the phrase, and I don't know if everybody else, even though I said it to this gentleman, that African-American women must dummy down. If it's shown that we are intelligent, very smart, very observant, that we can come up with strategies and plans and things of that nature, very much so dismissed and very much so put to the side. An African-American male could possibly get his idea across more than an African-American woman. That's how Mm -hmm. I feel Mm -hmm. it is. That was my experience, particularly in corporate America. Mm -hmm. When I was in corporate America for over 20-something years and found that in order for me to get along, I had to learn to dumb me down. Yeah. And so asking me if, if I demonstrated that I knew something, like I said, I had two managers because of that doctoral, mm-hmm. they did everything in their power to tear me down. And it's no, I'm not being paranoid. I could see what was happening. I was humiliated in a meeting by a contract in the company. There was the person that was the contact person. And they, she just, it was a very difficult day, I guess I was saying, which was really interesting to me because the question was asked based upon your experiences of previous jobs, what do you see is different in this job? That was the basis of the question. And so everyone answered. And then it was time for me. And I'm freaking American woman. So I started running it down. In previous jobs, they did this. It's good to have the strategy for this. And you can reach other people doing this. And I was just going down the list. And for instance, and that's the other thing is how we communicate. Because I notice I communicate in metaphors and trying to help to understand what it is. And so I was giving these metaphors and going through. And I remember seeing the white male was the one that asked the question. And as I kept talking, he was like jovial, smiling, and was like going through and listening. And as I kept talking, his whole demeanor changed. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, what is this answering this question? I don't understand. Going through. And then finally, the female chimed in and said, it's good that you're not in charge. And, and yeah, and it was like 20 people. I was devastated. I'm and so sorry that happened to you, Dr. E. Yeah, I just, it's the thing that occurs to you. When you're a BIPOC, you have to be prepared to, to know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, how you react to it, you can never be prepared for it because it blindsides you. But you're raised and you understand that this can come at you at any time. Yeah, and, and so many of us were taught to fit in. Just sit yes. in. Be a yes. lesser version of yourself. Yes. So you don't stand out. Yes. Yeah. So that's but I think that's what it is with African-American women. I, I don't know how it is, if it's the same within the Asian culture, but for African-American women, or at least for me, it's like watching as it's 
a difficulty sometimes of battling society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and battling within mm-hmm. amongst each other, other women. Because I remember my mom telling me when I was growing up, you can't trust other women. That was her lesson. You can't trust other women because they'll do you in. And that's how it was raised. But then the experiences I've had where it's like you don't trust mm-hmm. because it they can come at you at any time. Mm-hmm. And, and so you just have to be resilient to bounce back from it. Yeah. That, that's how you prepare. Oh, my God, I have so many questions. <laughs> the thing is, too, is when we're taught that, right? Like what your mom said, you just be on the lookout because you can't trust but women. My dad, his theme was you cannot trust anyone. Okay, sure, we put in the, the trauma. But when we are taught that from a young age, don't trust. And then we get society. We get the oppression. We got the racism. So many of us walk around with a sense of, I am always scanning for safety. But what does that do to our nervous system, right? And it's interesting because talking with a lot of my clients who are women of color, a lot of them don't even know until they name it that they are scanning for safety because mm-hmm. it's so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Very much. I I agree with that. And that's what I would see. Like it's with the African-American male clients I have, they're aware in many respects. And so naming it is, yeah, I understand that you understand. Yeah. So I don't have to damn the detail. But when I talk to African-American women, there's one client I have in Amos powerful position. I am just awed that she is in such a powerful position. And she questions herself constantly. Or she doesn't feel she's worthy. Or she doesn't feel that she can ask for what she wants. She has to give it up. But I can imagine because of her position, that she has to be a phenomenal professional mm-hmm. to have gotten to that level. We're like one step below C-suite. <laughs> Very professional. But there is such a high insecurity yeah. of, and questioning, was that right? I, she's asked me several times, did, did I do that wrong? So what do you do with that? I always said, does it feel wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they... And particularly with her, she was like, they say that I'm rude and I'm, I am cold towards people. And I was like, yeah, Ann. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I said, look, my theory is that if you're a jerk, okay, embrace it. Because like people talk to you as, yes, I'm a jerk. Yes, I know I'm a jerk. I just, Okay. So now that we've gotten that on the table, let's go forward. Yeah. Because we already know I'm a jerk, but that has nothing to do with what we're dealing with at hand, what my personality is and what it is you do. So that was my response to her. I was, she was like, it's like I, telling me in, in, in her personal lives, 
They're telling me that I don't listen to people and I don't, okay, you don't listen to people. All right. But you have to work on that. It's like, oh, however, that doesn't preclude you from being able to speak your mind. Mm -hmm. But it, that's the trait. It's okay. If I'm rude, then I have no right to speak my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think it's also who is saying you're rude? Because from what I read and the research I've done and stuff is that black women, if they're loud, they are seen as the angry black women by the other population. So I would say if they say that she's, if they say she's a jerk, it's okay, but whose opinion is that? Yes, correct. Yeah. And that's one of the things I look at too of who is saying this and like i said unfortunately within the community it is it, that's being said but then it's also outside of the community and within mm. her professional life mm -hmm. and i'm like okay you but you're good at what you do that, that's what i would ask i said but you're good at what you do is that correct you are a very good decision maker is that correct and oh yeah and i was like so then What's the reason you think what you have to say is not as important? Well, if you're a good decision maker, if you're good at what you do, mm -hmm. then it, you should be able to say what, what comes to mind. If it's wrong, okay, then that gives us the opportunity to learn. But it doesn't keep you from stating it. But it, I've noticed it, and it said it's been my experience too. You dumb me down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you fly below the radar and you don't say a whole lot. It's how I feel even today that working within the organizations that I do, that it's important that I not say a whole lot mm -hmm. because it's preservation. But when is it preservation versus I am not speaking my truth? I think I speak my truth among those who were have their minds open to listen. Well, and it, oddly enough to me, and, and it's not to say we got different levels, but it's like those who are in the trenches get it. Mm -hmm. Those who are in the ivory tower, as I say, don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very far removed not only from the folks of color, but people in general, but it's even more so with the folks of color because of, like I said, that sense of being dismissed. You cannot be this smart. You be. Mm -hmm. and, and if you are, then you're something that's you frightening me. Well, you, you shouldn't be able to think that way. Well, because you become a threat. Yes. Yeah, which is so yeah. unfortunate. I am sure it's very true. I am curious with your background in mental health as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Did you consciously raise your son in a particular way? T like taking into account how black men are treated to in society. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. You're bringing up a question that. I often battle with, even with my current clients, mm. with the African-American male, particularly how they've been treated, I know they have to have that resiliency, but they also have to have that 
as I call it, that shield. Mm. Um, and it was interesting, Dr. Richard Majors, who did this book a long time ago, um, it's called Cool Pose, and it talks about the demeanor of African-American men. And But it's how it's used, unfortunately, it doesn't allow them to connect, particularly with their personal lives and with the relationships that they have. But it is something that helps them to survive. Mm-hmm. And I always question, as I'm talking with them and having them open up and talk about their feelings and being in touch with those feelings, do I in some way become much more detrimental than helpful? Because that is a survival technique that they use day in and day out. And when it came to my son, I kept thinking I would only tell him to let his guard down at home, which is sanctuary. But for the most part, it's no, you don't show your feelings. You don't demonstrate the emotions. You don't, as they say, never let them see you sweat. Never let them see you sweat. Never let them know what it is that you're thinking. And I think with my husband is there, it's like he was the very good balance. Because I, as I always say, I knew I was a good mom in raising my kid, but I could never raise him to be an African-American male so to speak. My husband could. Yeah. Because he knew all the nuances and the subtleties that my son needed to know and understand Mm -hmm. in order to get through this world. And so I, I even noticed it now with my son, there's when he's just, it's just he and and my husband. Yeah. He's like strange. I think my son marches to a different drum in a different universe. Um, <laughs> the galaxy far away. Nothing wrong with that. I would just that's like what I said. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing but when we're out in public, it's like he switches. And I watched this where he is. He, we were going to do some. We tasked him with some family things that needed to be addressed and needed to look for a professional to address these. And so he was the one that was tasked to do this. And so. He narrowed it down to two folks and he was like, okay, you need to come. Tell me what you think. And so I went into these meetings with these professionals that he was interviewing. And it was like, is this person? He was, it was just, he was firing the questions at him. And it was like, oh, totally different. And then we got back in the car and he's like, so what did you think? Who wants that? So I I think in order for him to survive, I appreciate what my husband had to impart to him. Mm -hmm. But I also appreciate the fact that he feels safe Mm -hmm. to let his guard down at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So I was sharing with you before I reached out to a few of your old students. And I was like, I'm talking to Dr. A. They're like, whoa, I have questions. <laughs> what has been the most surprising in your over 25 years of practice in mental health? Seeing people blossom. It is still 
it's something to see someone walk in and there is such despair. Yeah, I, I had a client last year. There was such despair with her. I could tell um, something happened with her family and it was so unexpected. She had a blended family, but it was such a difficulty, one, for her to even make the phone call to set up the appointment. And she explained that to me on, in the first session and saying, I'm afraid and we're not supposed to talk to you folks and that whole thing. But as we spent time together, I realized how she began to relax mm-hmm. and she began to take charge. Because again, it's that whole, okay, I'm female in the family. I'm like down lower. And her taking on that leadership role, even though family was expected, the males in the family were expected to take on the leadership role. But she had ideas and she had gone through a lot as well. And and what she brought to the table, not unlike me, (laughs) she grew up around the gangs and the whole bit. Now here we are and the whole professional stuff. But she would just, again, refrain from saying what it is that she wanted to see Mm -hmm. happen and go through. Seeing her blossom and embrace that. And no, you know what? It's okay if I think this way. It's okay if I have ideas. Others mm-hmm. may not like it, mm-hmm. but that's okay. They're my ideas. So that that was just something that has always to see people blossom. Mm-hmm. It's really cool to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so great. What advice would you give to a BIPOC therapist that is starting their career now? Mm-hmm. Know what it is that you need to have to be comfortable. I explained to many practicum students, but definitely to the BIPOC practicum students that are jumping out there and the counselor, is don't take on the first thing that comes along. Oh, I'm so excited. I guess somebody wants to to counsel with them. Don't don't rush into it. Are they going to teach you what you want to know to feel successful in your career? Because you already know you're going to bring the best to the table. You know you're going to give them something that makes you a valuable asset to that organization. It's okay to ask for what you want. Go after an organization that you know will teach you what it is that you want to know, accept you for what it is that you have to say, and admire what it is that you have to do. Yeah. Go after that organization. Don't just take any old thing that comes along. Does it mean you might have to wait? Okay. You may. As I always told folks, I cleaned toilets before. I can clean them again. Well, now wait to get what it is that I want, that I know be beneficial to me, an environment that is conducive to me. Don't you think that's a bit tricky, though, because I'm just being the devil's advocate, because a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't. And it's not just BIPOC, and it's folks in general. Yeah. 
career stuff with people for a while and and it's somebody noticed me and they want me and it's but is this something you want Mm -hmm. is it something you're going to be happy with is it something that you'll you will be treated fairly because they always talk about the burnout and counseling that oh it's the clients you know what the system Mm -hmm. burn you out Mm -hmm. the system can take you down faster than the clients can yeah constantly having to advocate for your clients, constantly battling inept managers, constantly short on supplies that you need. I worked at a place, you had to supply your own tissue. It's, I can't order any tissue. You can buy some. He used to say I wasn't there long. But he, it's like, I just say, don't short change yourself. I, I think what a lot of, clients on the other side don't understand you. I don't know how is it in the States, but in Canada, if you work for someone else in the private practice, the norm is that the clinic takes anywhere from 52% to 70%. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you talk about burned out. You have to see how many clients to make a decent amount of money. Wow. And I, I don't know how it is in private practice here. The majority of the folks that I know that are in private practice here are in you know, like one man shop. Yeah, just like me. Yeah, or I should say one shop. <laughs> yeah, or one person shop. Yep. I don't know if that's it, but I do know. Like I said, like the was when I say corporate America, it was like corporate ran counseling. Mm-hmm. It was the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so you're asking the question, it was like, how many clients would it is to have a decent income? And it was like, for them, it was the numbers. How many clients did you have to see in order not to be fired? Oh, yeah. And so they looked for us for the month. I would need to do between 55 to 60 clients during the month. And if you didn't make the quota for the clients, you had to go out into the community to do psychoeducation, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and networking. They were asking about how many people did you meet? <laughs> how many times did you go out? You know, so in order to, you had to do more and more. So that was what we ran into down here. I don't know how it is with private practice, but definitely in corporate. It's it's the numbers. It's not sustainable in the long run. No, it's not. It's mm-hmm. not. And and it became difficult uh, for a number of folks, not a number of my colleagues. For me, it was like you do what you can to survive. So you just yeah. make it through. Yeah. Um, but a number of my colleagues were like, I can't do this. I I can't. And it was interesting. I remember when I went into the position, there were others around me. Said, okay, let's see how long you stay. What? <laughs> so it's been six people in two years. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's when I realized, it, yeah, the numbers are just out- outrageous. Last question. I mean, I have the patient question, but I don't want to keep you. No problem. 
with everything that is happening in the world with BIPOC folks facing racism, discrimination, stuff like that, how do you stay hopeful? I, I guess first, because of the era I was raised, there is always future thinking. Mm. And, and I know within my community, we think in the future. We don't yeah. think in the present. Yeah. And so because of the era when I was raised and, and I was like the height of the civil rights movement, all of that was in there. The thing to keep you going was that there was hope that if it didn't happen for you, it would happen for the next generation. Yes. And so that's how I keep going. I keep thinking, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe in my son's, or maybe in, I have two great nieces, maybe in their lifetime, that things will shift and things mm -hmm. will change. And I know it takes a while for things to change. But it's it's like you have to keep believing that somewhere down in the future, somebody's going to wake up and go, are you kidding me? Y'all need to look at exactly what it is we're doing and change it up. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's about us trying to survive in this world together. Hmm. You know. Which is, yeah, which, what a, which is really is a lot of my thinking is that it's the collective, it's the community. Yes. yes. We get into trouble when we think so individual. I agree. Yeah. Okay, yeah. no, last, I have a last question. The, this question was repeated twice from your past students. Okay. Are there any books that you would recommend or have made an impact for you? Uh, the Invisible Man, Cool Post, First Break All the Rules. Mm. I love that. Yeah, those are the three that really had an impact on me. Okay. Yeah. The last one, Don't Conform. That's what it's about. Conform. Mm -hmm. It's like it may be the consequences. <laughs> People may stare at you funny, but well, thank you, Doctor. Oh, it's been a delight. I really appreciate it, Patricia. I was like, oh, anytime you want me to come back, talk about something else. Okay, okay, I'm gonna hold you to that because I really enjoy our conversation. <laughs> yeah, because I'm strange. I understand. No, not strange. Unique. Okay, I'll take it. Actually, we called it Uni-Q when I was growing up. I'm Uni-Q. Yes, I'm Uni-Q. That's what we said in my community. Oh, no, you're Uni-Q. I love that. We're going to take yeah. that. Can I borrow that? Yeah, go on here. Take it. All right. Like, <laughs> yes, I made you sound elegant and stuff. Uni-Q. I love my conversation with Dr. A. We talked for 40 minutes after I stopped the recording. That's how much I enjoyed our discussion. You can find the books Dr. A recommended in the show notes. And today's wisdom from me, Ee, your Chinese auntie, always support your people and talk about them to your friends and community. Promote their business, sell them, look after each other. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Also, remember to sign up for our newsletter to receive free materials and updates. Links in the website, patriciapeterson.ca. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.ca. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you in the next episode.